This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell, and I shall dwell, and I shall dwell, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pray with me. Jesus, um, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for being the living word. And we gather here today not out of religious obligation, not because we think we'll earn anything from you. We genuinely believe that you speak and long to hear your voice. So quiet our souls, open our ears, give us eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in the face Jesus Christ, that's our prayer. It's in him that we pray, in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. It is an absolute joy to be back with you again and to jump back into Psalm 23. The beginning of the summer, we started a series looking at this epic poem. Uh, The Psalms are a collection of, of Hebrew poems that really guide us in this journey of faith that the Hebrew people embarked on, walking with Uh, their God. And they wrote these songs, they wrote these poems, these psalms we call them, uh, and in many ways they reflect the nature and character of God. None more popular or more prolific in both popular culture and impact in people's lives than Psalm 23. You can rest assured, there's a number of people this week on their deathbed, pastor visited them, family member visited them, asked them, is there a passage of scripture you'd like for me to read? And said Psalm 23, because it paints for us this picture of what God is like. It it draws out for us, David does in this psalm, draws out for us the, the nature and character of God. It puts its finger on the pulse of humanity, the the declaration in our hearts, in in your heart, in mine, in our souls, that this is what we long for God to be like. And David the psalmist declares the deepest yearnings, the deepest longings of your soul about what God is like are actually true, real. I was thinking about this passage of scripture this week. And in light of the the line of the psalm we're going to talk about, I was reminded of a TV show that I watched growing up in the 80s. Uh, The TV show was on Nickelodeon, and the title of the show was You Can't Do That on Television. Anybody watch that show? No? Good. Okay, so um, a few nods, but I went back and did some research, and turns out it was horrible. 
I mean, just terrible writing, terrible acting, terrible everything. In fact, um, I asked my wife, did you watch that show growing up? And she said, no, my parents said if you can't do that on television, it shouldn't be on television. And so they didn't let me watch it. Now, there was one thing about this show that made it stand out. Anybody remember? Slime, yes. Green slime. So when you have a bad script, it turns out, the only thing you need to do to make a show watchable is at various random moments throughout the show, pour green slime on the actors. Works every time. Now, Nickelodeon got so much press, notoriety out of this that they started to use this in like game shows they were hosting. They started to use this in other TV shows. They're like, hey, if the show stinks, just pour slime on people. Now, I would submit to you that a lot of things have gotten worse since the 1980s, maybe not that kind of television. I mean, you go back and watch it and you tell me. It was absolutely horrific. But I started to think, I wonder how many, how many people's view of God is reflected and you can't do that on television. I wonder how many people view God as the slime God. He asks you a question, maybe a theological question. Where do you stand on fill in the blank? And if you get it wrong, green slime. Now, this view is uh, pushed forward by some people that have cable television shows. And so when something like uh, earthquake in Haiti happens, they'll tell you, green slime. When a hurricane hits New Orleans and wipes the city out, they'll tell you, green slime. Just a wicked city. So God was... Acting judgment on it, green slime. When a, when a tsunami hits a part of the globe, they'll get out there and they'll say, green slime. Now, here's the thing. You and I may not put it like that. We may not say, you know what, yeah, I, I believe in the green slime God. But what we will internally think is, am I being punished for this? Did I do something wrong? Is God, is God exacting judgment on me or punishment on me? Is life really, really hard because I did something wrong and God's angry? Is he the green slime God? Maybe we have to wrestle with that question a little bit. What, what is it that the God of the universe pours down on our head? Is it green slime? Is he up there going, got it wrong, green slime? Or is he better than that? Psalm 23. David, king, warrior, poet, David writes this. The Lord is my shepherd. Say it with me, friends, I shall not want. So David starts this poem, this song, this psalm by saying, in God, because he's leading me, guiding me, and shaping my life, he's my shepherd. Because of him, I lack nothing. I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down, not by force, not by pressing me down, but by favor. He's so ridiculously good, I just want to follow him, be with him, and lie down and enjoy him wherever he's at. He leads me uh, he li- makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. David says, he, he, when I wander away, he brings me back. He's that good. He leads me in paths of righteousness 
for his name's sake. When sheep are healthy, the shepherd gets the glory. We said in our message on that passage, nobody's ever looked at a sheep and thought, wow, they work out, okay? No, when sheep are healthy, they look back at the shepherd and go, he's an amazing shepherd. David says, that's, it. That's, what, that's what God is like. And then he takes us to a place where we've all been or will be because we all know that life isn't just green pastures, quiet streams, and sitting in a field, right? Right? Hey, I'm just saying, am I alone in this? That hasn't been my experience. You're all going, yeah, actually, Okay, so he goes on, David goes on, and if he didn't go here, we would say this poem has nothing to do with real life, but he does go there because he's writing about real life. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear how much? No evil, for you're with me. He goes, that's why I fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your correction and your protection over my life is a strength to my soul. That's what David said. Last week, we talked about this wonderful idea, this, this uh, verse five, where David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we said last week that the truth of the gospel is not that God destroys all of our enemies, but he does defeat them, and he invites us to feast on the goodness of the gospel as our enemies, as our sin, as our shame, as our weakness, as our failure looks on, we feast on Jesus' good. Jesus is good. And he goes on to say, you anoint my head with oil. Cup overflows. So maybe he's not the green slime God. Maybe he's not the, you got the answer wrong, God. Maybe just maybe he's better than that. You anoint my head with oil. It's interesting because this idea, this concept has its roots in the shepherd, ancient shepherding community. See, shepherds would anoint their sheep. They would take oil and they would pour it over their sheep's head and they would sort of work it into their sheep's face and their ears and their neck area because uh, insects would get in there and whether it's a tick or lice or whatever, would get into their skin and bite them and this oil, this anointing that shepherds would put over their sheep would protect them. It would um, keep them from getting sick. And so this idea, this idea of anointing, was taken and taken not just to be used in the shepherding community, but God used it, God's people used it as a symbol. It was a metaphor, anointing was, a symbol of God's blessing, of God's protection, God's empowerment over a life. Now, here's what you need to know. Two things you need to know about anointing. One, as you read through the Old Testament, there are very few pictures, very few concepts, very few teachings that pack more richness and significance and punch than the idea of anointing. So starting in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is on a journey. He's run away from his brother. He's done some shady things. He's walking through um, the, an area of the desert called Bethel, and he comes to this place, and you may remember this. It's a sort of a famous line. He exclaims, surely God was in this place, and I knew it not. 
Surely God was here. I didn't notice it, but God was here. And he takes oil and he anoints this rock. And it's this picture, this symbol of God is present. And anointing carried with it that weight. God is present. God's here in a significant and very real way. Now, as you read through your Old Testament, places were anointed. We'll talk about them in a second. But, but really, primarily, three people, three types of people were anointed in the Old Testament. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. It symbolized a special, unique sense of calling. It was a way of God saying through his people and to his people, I'm covering them, which is literally what the word anointing means. I'm covering them, I'm surrounding them, I'm equipping them, empowering them, blessing them, and releasing them for this task that I've called them to. A pretty narrow group of people received anointing in the Old Testament. It was a way for people to interact with God, anointing was. When places were anointed, they were claimed as holy places. They were places where God said, since that's anointed, it's holy, and I will meet with you there. It gave a sense of this picture of like spiritual residue significance, presence, blessing, protection. God is in this place. Prophets, priests, kings, and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So that's one thing. Uh, anointing is unparalleled in its significance spiritually in the Old Testament. Second thing you need to know about anointing. You ready? Look up at me. You are anointed. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the scriptures say clearly, you are anointed. So look at this with me, because Paul's going to write this to the church at Corinth, and here's what he says. He says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Now, here's the deal. The richness of scripture, we could camp out here for the rest of the month, probably the rest of the year, and never plumb this dry. He's established you, he's planted you as a body with us, he says, in Christ. That's unbelievable. Can I get an amen? Okay, we're going to need a little banter today, okay? And he says this, not only has he established you in Christ, planted you in Christ, and he has what? Anointed us. So he takes this concept from the Old Testament that was reserved for prophets, priests, kings, tabernacles, and he moves it into you all. You all, he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? Guarantee. See, here's what happens, friends. What's reserved in the Old Testament for specific tasks, for specific calling on specific people in the new covenant is widened to, and this isn't for just specific people, this is for all. All people. Jesus, as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he's betrayed, literally he is standing in a place that is entitled Gethsemane, which means the press of olives, where olive oil was made, where anointing was birthed. 
He's standing in the garden of the press of oils, ready to go and step onto the cross to shed his blood and give his body that it might flow over his people that you and I might in Christ be not just saved and redeemed, yes and amen, but anointed according to the scripture. That that flows over us. Have you ever heard somebody say, man, that, that worship leader, they're just anointed. That speaker, there's just an anointing on their life. And I would say back to them, yes and amen. But in saying that, I hope what we're not saying and wow, nobody else is. I mean, because really what we need to say is, and so are you if you're a follower of Jesus. Your anointing might be in a different area. Your gifting might be in a different area. Your calling might be. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are anointed. So here's the deal. A lot of us go, well, I I would be if I could get my act together, right? Like, that's a potential for me, but you don't know my life. You're right. I don't, but I know David's. Adultery, murder, no father of the year award on his mantle, right? And so it turns out that in all of his failing, what David looks at and sees is not his achievement, but God's faithfulness. And that's where your anointing is found. And that's where your anointing is birthed. And I want to encourage you this morning, follower of Jesus, if that's who you are, to embrace the anointing that's on your life. It's there right now. You may not know how to tap into it. We'll talk about that a little bit. You may not know how to tap into it. You may not know how to walk in it, but I want to invite you just at the onset, based on the scriptures, to uh, believe afresh that you are anointed. His spirit rests on you, and I am convinced that if you're able to embrace the anointing that's on you, it will give you confidence for whatever God has in front of you. You can embrace the anointing on you, It will give you confidence to walk into whatever God has in front of you. It's really interesting because this idea of anointing isn't limited to Hebrew circles. It isn't limited to just these people of God and in the story of God. It was widespread. On on King Tut's um, tomb inside the catacomb, there was this painting that was found. And it has this servant girl preparing a banquet for all of these Um, sort of higher up women in the nation. And if you look, on each of their heads, there's this cone. That cone was oil in a a solid form that as they went throughout this meal would melt because of their body heat and this anointing, wouldn't that be great? Hey, come on over for dinner. Here's your cone. Let's turn up the heat. Welcome to the party. You're gonna get stanky in here. Okay, so, so they had this oil on their head that throughout the meal would just drip over their bodies, reminding them of the presence of the divine for the Egyptians. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at that picture, and then I want you to look around. Look around the room. See, you don't see it on the heads of the people around you, but I can assure you it's there. I can assure you based on the scriptures that those who follow the way of Jesus have been given the spirit of Jesus and the scriptures clearly say you 
are anointed. Like there's a covering over your life. There's a blessing over your life. There's a protection over your life. There's an empowerment over your life. And I love it that David says, look at, look at this, this is awesome. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I feast on the goodness of the gospel as my sin looks on, as my shame looks on, as my failure looks on, as people who want to destroy me look on. I feast on the goodness of the gospel. And even then, in that moment, you don't just get me by, but you anoint my head as my enemies look on. With oil and my cup overflows, as if to paint this picture of God where he's like the annoying waiter or waitress who every time you take a drink from your cup and put it down, they're there to refill it. Been there? Annoying yet awesome, right? So just like try to chug it and boom, where are you now? Right? He goes, Listen, God's that good. You can't, He never runs dry, He never gives up on us, right? The presence of my enemies, you anoint my head. Kenneth Bailey, the great scholar, puts it this way. He says, no stone is left unturned in in the host's efforts to assure the guest, that's you, that's me, that he or she is welcomed King of kings, the Lord of lords, his banquet, that we are welcomed, honored, and loved. Presence of your enemies, whatever's going on in your life, and just, just, you just need to know this, that you are anointed by the Spirit of God. It's this anointing that reminds us who we are. It's this anointing that reminds us whose we are in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of our friends. It reminds us that we are gods and it launches us out into his beautiful world. Let me show you how. There's three things that this anointing does as it rests on us. You can flip to back if you want to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says this, and we're gonna start a little bit earlier than we did before, but he says this, he says, for all the promises of God find their what? Yes, in him, that's in Jesus. So here's what Paul says, every single promise God has given is fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the work of Christ. Okay, so if you're hoping for something outside of him, may I present to you, you are hoping for something that the scripture does not promise. I'd invite you to change what you hope in. Every promise God's given finds its yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen, our so be it, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has, say it with me again, anointed us. And who has also, this is God, put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So here's what Paul does. He ties together a number of different ideas and they all circle around this. You are anointed and by that God means his spirit dwells in and lives in you. And what he says that means is that, look up at me, you are sealed as in claimed in his, God's. He is yours, 
and you are his. This word sealed is like a business term. It refers to a guarantee of the fulfillment of a contract that what you sign up for will be delivered. And so what Paul says is because you're in him, he's claimed you and it's a guarantee you were sealed into Christ. So as an anointed follower of Jesus, you are claimed. You are claimed. And you may go, well, I'm not sure I like that. And I might say back to you, sorry. But God is not an abusive owner. He's an empowering, loving shepherd of your soul. And when you find yourself in him, C.S. Lewis writes, you find your true self, yourself as you were always meant to be. It's not a, oh my gosh, now I'm owned and now I'm claimed. It's now I have a spirit inside of me that doesn't look back at God and look at him in fear. I have this spirit of adoption as the son of God, knowing I'm claimed and owned by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Peter would say to the churches that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Romans chapter eight says, we have a spirit inside of us that cries out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Look at the way that Paul says this. He goes, all right, all right. And, and you have these, because you're claimed, you have these promises. You stand under this banner, this canopy of God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, what he promised in Christ, he will deliver his love won't run out. His grace is sufficient. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will be victorious. He has been victorious. And in him, you will overcome. That's the promise. And you step into that as you recognize, man, I'm the anointed child of God. Your spirit rests on me, lives in me, dwells in me. And he says this finally. He says, and he's also put his seal upon us, stamped us as his, and his spirit in our hearts. It means that God speaks. Do you believe that? It means that he's working. John writes it like this in 1 John. He says, but the, what? Anointing that you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, which begs the question, what the heck are we doing here? Here's my, here's, my, here's my prayer. There's a lot of ways people answer that. My prayer is that I'm not the one teaching you. Because okay? if I'm teaching you, we're at a disadvantage. But here's the thing. If you're anointed and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and we read his scriptures and he goes, that's for you. Move on that. Act on that. Live in that. I'm not the one pointing that out to you. My words are feeble. Come on, people. Luckily, God is at work. God is on the move. And so John says this anointing means his, his spirit lives inside of us. His presence dwells on us and he teaches us. He leads us. He is at work. That's awesome. Because you're claimed, the spirit of God is your teacher. And he won't leave you, the scriptures say. Second point, okay? So one, you are claimed. And for this, we need to unpack a little bit from the Old Testament where we get this idea and some of the weight that's behind 
anointing. As I said, it's really second to none in the metaphors of the way that God's presence is displayed in the way that his voice is welcomed and heard. And so the nation of Israel is commanded by God. They live in slavery for 400 years. They're led out to be the people of God. They follow him in the wilderness. He gives them some instructions. You probably know 10 of them at least, right? Ten, 10 commandments, okay? And part of the instruction God gives to his people is how do we prepare a place for worship? How do we prepare a place for encounter? How do we prepare a place to meet with God? And the short answer to that is we build a tabernacle and we anoint it. Exodus chapter 30. Listen to what the writer of Exodus says. God speaking. God commanding. With it, he says, after showing them and telling them how to make this oil, he says, with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all of its utensils. So he's going to talk about the tent of meeting and the things that are inside of it and the way that anointing these is necessary to meeting with God. It says, and lampstands and utensils. <laughs> Can you imagine picking up utensils? It's slippery. Got a lot of oil on it. Okay, so um, the burnt altar of incense, burnt offering with its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, setting them apart, and they may, that they may be holy, and whoever touches them will become holy. This is huge. So what God says is the place we meet in cannot stand as a meeting place, a dwelling place of you and the divine on its own. It needs to be prepared. It needs to be um, anointed. It needs to be made something different because it's unacceptable on its own to be a place where God meets with people. So, so take it and anoint it. Look up at me for a moment. You know one of the ways you're described in Scripture in the New Testament? You are the temple of Holy and the anointing that's on you, in the same way that the anointing oil made this place holy, made this place acceptable, made it a place where God convened with and dwelt with men and women, it made it a sacred place. In the same way that that anointing made the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, a sacred place, so too does the anointing from the Spirit on your life make you a sacred space. Make you a place where God dwells, a place where God meets with people, where he meets with you. Listen, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that, follower of Jesus? You have been claimed and you have been consecrated. You are sacred wow, there's no more holy place you can go. I was struck as I was studying by just the thought of going to worship in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I mean, it looks a little bit like South Fellowship Church. 
the inside more so. I mean, yeah, the, the outside doesn't capture it as good as the inside, right? Can you imagine, though, singing with a room packed full of believers, amazing grace in that chapel? Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, singing 10,000 reasons, and on that day when my strength is fading, still my soul will sing a prayer. I mean, can you imagine how majestic, how beautiful, how powerful that would be? It took almost 110 years to build. The ceiling is 448 feet tall from the floor to the top of the dome that Michelangelo designed. And it holds nothing on you. It holds nothing on you. According to the scriptures, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. St. Peter's Basilica, breathtaking, amazing, but doesn't hold a candle to you as far as creating a place where God meets with his people. Look up at me for a moment. You Carry the presence of God in you. As anointed followers of Jesus, if that's who you are, you carry his presence in you. You've been designed, uniquely wired as the resting place for the spirit of God. And you, because he lives in you, have the ability to change every single environment you walk into because you carry his presence with you, follower of Jesus. You walk into your family, you carry his presence. You walk into his job, you carry his presence. When you walk down your street, walking your dog, talking to your neighbors, you carry his presence. Carry it. And see, embracing the anointing allows you to carry it well. It allows you to carry it confidently to know that you are a consecrated, holy, called out, beautiful space that God dwells in. I give you, I'm running out of time. Three things. I want to, three pieces of encouragement, really, I want to give you. One is to carry that presence, that spirit, to carry it intentionally. The Holy Spirit's described as a dove. Flies away easy, skittish. How, how do we cultivate this? How do we, how do we carry it intentionally? Second, I would say cultivate it devotionally. Cultivate an awareness of his presence. Cultivate a conviction around God, you live in me. And that has to mean something. That, ha- that, that, that can't be playing religion, can it? I mean, it, it If the church is going to have any power, it cannot be words that we believe. It has to be a way that we live. Third, cherish it joyfully. Carry it intentionally. Cultivate it devotionally. Cherish it joyfully. Moses goes on writing to the people of Israel about how to set places apart, how to, how to anoint not just places, but then he goes on to people because people had special, unique anointings. And listen to what he says. He continues. After telling them how to anoint the tent of meeting, he says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, set them apart, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, 
this shall be my holy anointing throughout your generations. Well, see, in the Old Testament, we had some people chosen and anointed because of their lineage as priests. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we have a kingdom of priests. That's great. That's really amazing news. Because instead of calling one person to be this literally bridge builder is what the word priest means between God and man, what he's saying is my spirit dwells in every single one of them. There are are many St. Peter's Basilica walking around. I dwell there. I find my home there. I am at home in them. And therefore, they are called, they are priests, bridge builders for the glory of God. Here's the way that Peter writes it to the churches. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal, what's the word? Priesthood. So the reformers back in the mid-1500s, they they caught back on to this idea The church wasn't intended to be hierarchical where some people could talk to God and some people couldn't. In fact, the scriptures would say the exact opposite, that not only is the playing field at the foot of the cross level, none of us carry any sort of credentials there, but so too in our interaction with God, so too in our calling. No calling is better or worse than the other. We are a kingdom of priests with direct access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. No prophet, no priest, and no king ever received an anointing to sit on the sidelines. It wasn't like you're anointed as a priest. Now go put your feet up and grab a lemonade. The anointing was a commissioning to be a person that lived in the presence of God embraced the spirit of God and walked into God's beautiful world, partnering with him to build his kingdom. You're consecrated, you're claimed, and you are also called. It goes to the very core of our identity, friends. Followers of the way of Jesus as anointed ones, ones on whom his spirit rests. He does not make it rest on us to leave us on the sidelines, but to invite us into his beautiful world where he is at work in the restoration, renewal, and redemption of all things according to his scriptures. All things. Let me give you a few things on calling and then we're gonna call it quits, Three things. One, calling always begins where you are with what you have. Calling always begins where you are with what you have. See, David was called to be a shepherd before he was ever called to be a king. But his faithfulness as a shepherd led him into his destiny as a king. So the question I think we need to wrestle with is not so much what's the calling way out on the horizon of the someday calling of God, but what's the calling today, because sometimes calling requires sequential steps of faithfulness that you and I walk in. Second thing, calling is always grounded in real life. Calling is grounded in real life. It begins with faithfulness, with where you're at and what you have. Sometimes a calling requires moving. Calling always requires movement. Sometimes, sometimes it's God's calling me over there. 
But calling is always God's calling me to follow him. Sometimes it requires moving. It always requires movement. Always requires movement. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Sometimes it's way easier to move, isn't it? Sometimes it's way easier to just pick up shop and go think that the grass is greener somewhere else, right? I mean, if I go there and join that thing that's going on, well, then I'll be part of God's calling on my life. I think everybody wants to join something significant, but very few people want to invest in a way where they become and create something significant. God's calling is far more on his anointed, um, be faithful in the now. Follow me now. You're called today. If you're waiting to step into a calling, my guess is you will very rarely ever get there. But if you live in a calling, you might find yourself in places you never dreamed doing things that go far above and beyond all that you could ever imagine. Three. The size of your calling is irrev- irrelevant. Faithfulness to your calling is essential. The size of the calling is irrelevant. Faithfulness to the calling is essential. Some of you are anointed to be excellent businessmen, excellent painters, excellent teachers, excellent doctors, nurses, I mean, you name, you are anointed by God to live in the place and the sphere of influence that he has called you to live. You are called not to go somewhere else, but to follow Jesus today and become all that his spirit prompts you, invites you, and works in you to become. I love the way uh, Martin Luther once said this. He said, the Christian shoemaker does not make Christian shoes by putting a cross on each shoe he creates. The Christian shoemaker makes Christian shoes by making really good shoes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying that our vocation and our calling is not distinctly Christian because we put a cross on it or even because we talk about Jesus all the time. It's uniquely, distinctly Christian because we do it in a way that honors Jesus and we do it with excellence. And if the spirit lives in you, his anointing is upon you and you are called. I don't know where, I just know you're called. You figure out where. If it's somewhere else and you're faithful today, we'll send you that somewhere else. Right? Well, if, you want to, if you're a church planter and you long to plant a church, we're, well, here's what we're going to ask. Are you going to be faithful today? Are you living into what God's invited you to right now? If so, man, let us, let us send you. The glory of God. See, when you embrace your anointing, claim that's on your life, the consecration that's over your life, and the call that's inviting you. When you embrace that anointing, you implicitly start to live in this confidence. God's present, God's here, he's powerful, he's at work, his love hasn't run out on me. Live into it. And one of the things that this anointing oil was also used for was they would put in these tiny basins and then they would light it on fire and this oil would light up rooms. It would light up space. And I want to tell you that I'm firmly convinced that for the follower of Jesus, his calling on your life is to live as an anointed one. 
and those who live as anointed ones are lit on fire, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to be a light in the beautiful world that he calls us to live in. I pray, friend, will you embrace it? Will you live confidently under it? Will you learn what it looks like to cultivate and to carry and to cherish the presence of God that lives inside of you? And look up at me one more time if you're a follower of Christ. He lives in you. You're anointed. David says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Let's pray. Jesus, for my friends out there who wrestle with this idea, even looking at their past and think, then there's no way, God, you would make sacred space in me. Would you remind them of the power of the cross? That as you stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, that press of wine preparing to give your body to shed your blood that it might flow over us and consecrate us, make us holy, adequate, sacred spaces for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Would you remind us that we are yours? You have a claim on our life, good shepherd. Remind us that we're holy. Would you remind us that we're called you stir something beautiful in your body as you remind us of the anointing that's over our lives. Thank you for not being the green slime God, the God of Holy Spirit anointing. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our benediction together? This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.